All right, I'd like to pray for us as we begin, and then we'll commit this to the Lord. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we're going to be looking at Solomon, and you know his story better than any of us. And you understand what happened in his heart that caused him to move from a man who was following you to a man who drifted in his relationship with you. And Lord, our our prayer is that you would guard our hearts so that we might finish well. That we would stay faithful to the end and be strong in our relationship with you. And so would you teach us today and help us to learn the things that we need to, that we would take it to heart and walk with you every day of our life. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my all-time favorite movies is Chariots of Fire. Not a Christmas movie. I know this time of year we're usually thinking of It's a Wonderful Life or A Christmas Carol or other ones like that. But I really love the movie Chariots of Fire. Uh, It came out way back in the 70s, so that kind of dates me, you know, and it's a story of two athletes who competed for England in the 1924 Olympics. And what I like about it is the contrast that it shows between one athlete, Harold Abrahams, who ran for personal glory and fame, and another athlete, Eric Liddell, who ran for the glory of the Lord. He was a Christian, and he wanted to honor God in everything that he did. And early in the movie, there is this race that Eric Little is running in that really captures his heart and determination. And I'd like us to look at that now. quarter I've ever seen, Mr. Little. Certainly the bravest. Come on. All right. Now here's the point that I'd like us to remember 
from that video clip. It's not how you start, and it's not if you stumble in the middle. It's how you finish that matters. We saw that with David last week, and that David stumbled into this tremendous sin that he committed. It was awful, and that was not a good thing, and the best thing is to avoid that at all. But David um, confessed his sins to the Lord, and we saw how when he repented of his sin and brought that to God, how God restored him in his relationship with God and his relationship with others and restored him to leadership. And David finished well. Today we're going to look at the life of Solomon and we're going to see the other side. Solomon was the son of David. He's called the wisest man who ever lived next to Jesus. And Solomon started well, but he finished poorly. And the question that most of us have when we look at Solomon's life and we think of his wisdom is how could you have that much wisdom and insight into things spiritually and finish so poorly? What does it take to walk with God and to finish well? And that's what I'd like us to think about today. There's three points I want to make as we look at Solomon's life and the scripture that's before us. Number one, if we're going to finish well, we need to walk in humility. Walk in humility. When the time came for David to die, he gave this charge to Solomon. And I'm going to read from 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. It's on page 176 in the story at the top. But chapter 2, verse 2, David said, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong and show yourself a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands. His laws and requirements is written in the law of Moses so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. So here is David giving this charge to Solomon to walk in his ways, keep his decrees and his commands. Now the Bible uses the word walk in both the Old Testament and the New Testament as a metaphor for life. A walking is something that uh, involves this kind of steady progress, you know, just putting one foot in front of the other and going in a, in a direction, and you're making that kind of progress, and it may seem slow at times, but it is steady, it is consistent, you can do it for a long time. And our spiritual life is to be like that. It's to be steady progress, that we are growing in Christ. It's why, you know, we have our quiet times. It's why we come to church week after week. It's why we read and study the scriptures. It's why we pray. Because the Christian life is not a sprint that's quickly over, but it's something that involves a long obedience, walking with God every single day of our life. And when we do that, we grow. And so if we're going to have steady progress in our spiritual life, then we need to be people who are humble and teachable, who see our need for God and His grace in our life and who come to His Word willing to hear, open to what God has to say. And Solomon showed that kind of humility early in his life as the king of Israel. I mean, when he became king, one of the first things that he did was he went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices to the Lord. 
And Gibeon was where uh, they did that. It was one of those high places where they went to worship the Lord. And he went there and he offered, uh, you know, hundreds of animals again and a sacrifice to the Lord. And that night the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And God said to him, Solomon, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. (laughs) Can you imagine that? I mean, here's God coming to him and saying, ask me. It's like a blank check. Ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. What would you have asked for? I mean, I think all of us think about that. You know, what would it be? Would we ask for long life? Would we ask for good health? Would we ask for, you know, just a lot of children? Or would we ask for a a big contribution to our bank account? Or uh, maybe would we ask for more wishes, you know, and things like that as people think through that. Well, Solomon pleased the Lord by asking for wisdom. And we see that in chapter 3, verses 6 to 15. Beginning of verse 6, it says, Solomon answered him and said, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. And you have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Now Solomon is older than being a little child at this point. He's a young man. But in his heart, he's feeling like a little child. And he said, Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And so here Solomon is, and he asks for a wise and discerning heart to govern God's people. He knows his need. I mean, he, he's like, you know, if you've ever taken a new job and you feel like you're in over your head, you know, that's where Solomon is. And he's going, who am I to lead this great people? and to follow in the footsteps of my father, David. He was young. He saw his need for God's hand on his life. And he asked for wisdom. And when God heard that prayer, he was delighted. And God said, not only will I give you wisdom that you asked for, but I'll give you what you haven't asked for. And he would give Solomon long life and riches and bless him so that he would be known as the wisest man who ever lived. Well, early on in Solomon's reign, we see his wisdom is tested by two women. They were prostitutes who came to him, each claiming the same baby as their own. And we saw that on the DVD that was shown. And here are these two women. They're coming before him, you know, and they're both uh, sharing their story. There's no witnesses to back them up. It's simply she said this and she said this. And how do you decide? You know, there, there are times when I'm sure judges today feel like that. It's a he said, she said situation. And who's right? Who's telling the truth? And so Solomon, as you know the story, asked them to bring a sword. And he gave the order to cut the child in half and give half to each woman. And the real mother, when she heard that, cried out, no, let her have him. Let her have him. She wanted the child to live. And the other woman said, No, cut him in two. Neither one of us should have him. Go ahead and kill the baby. 
And Solomon rightly discerned that the first woman was the mother, and he said, Give the baby to her. Well, when the people in the land heard Solomon's ruling, his wisdom and his fame began to grow, and the stories were told about Solomon's justice, his discernment, and his wisdom. You know, I look at someone like Solomon and I think, wouldn't it be great to have somebody like that in Washington right now? To lead us through the fiscal cliff and all of the other challenges that we are facing and to know the right way to go and what it is that we should do. When I think about our own life and our walk with God too, I think the challenge for us is to stay humble and teachable. Because just like Solomon, there can be times when maybe early in our life or when we came to faith in Christ and we didn't know everything about God and His Word, you know, and we're just soaking it up like a sponge, you can sometimes get to a point where you feel like, you know what, okay, I know the Bible. I I know, you know, generally what it says. And I've been walking with God a while, okay, and I can do this. You know, and whether it's thinking through our work, you know, I, I've gained more experience, more confidence, I can do this. Or for me, you know, yeah, I know how to put together a sermon, I can, I can take care of this. Whenever we start to think that way, that's when we are ripe for a fall. That's when we get into trouble. When we put more and more confidence in ourselves and feel like we don't need the Lord and we can handle things on our own. Sometimes people will say things about, well, I don't want to bother God with that. I'll just take care of it. Or, you know, like, like I'll let him handle the big things, but the little things I can take care of in my life. No, God wants us to pray about everything. To come to him with all our needs and to put our hand in his and walk with him. And that's why trials are not a bad thing in our life. Trials show us our need for God. Trials can help us to stay humble in our walk with Him. Those challenges that we face where we go, you know what, Lord, I don't know how to, how to handle this today or where to turn or God, would you give me wisdom today as I meet with this couple or as I am involved if you're in a business situation and you need wisdom and discernment? Trials can be a good thing. And the Scripture in the New Testament urges us to be completely humble and gentle to be a people who walk in humility, give God the glory, admit our own failings or weaknesses, and our need for prayer. And the reason we are to be humble and gentle is because that's exactly how Jesus is. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So we are to be like Christ and walk in humility. Secondly, we need to walk in wisdom. In 1 Kings chapter 4, we read how Solomon grew in wisdom in all areas of his life. Uh, Listen to this, chapter 4. It's on page 178 in the story at the bottom. But in chapter 4, beginning at verse 29, it says this, that God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breath of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezrahite, wiser than Heman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, 
and his songs numbered a thousand and five. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish, and men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. So you get the impression Solomon was like a walking encyclopedia. You know, you, you wanted to know something, you went to Solomon. And, and you go, that, that's just amazing. I mean, his breadth of knowledge, it was wide, it was deep, it was covering all areas. And the point that the Scripture makes here, though, is that Solomon's wisdom was a gift from God. This wasn't the product of good schools and training. You know, it wasn't like he had gone to the Harvard of the East and that's where he got all this wisdom and information. God can use that. He does use our education and our training to equip us. But this wisdom was God-given. It is deeper. It's more perceptive. Wisdom is really knowledge applied to life situations. And so Solomon wrote things down so others could grow in godly wisdom too. And we benefit from that. Solomon is the author of three books in the Bible, we believe. He's the author of Proverbs and of Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs. And each of those books has a particular meaning. They are part of what's called the wisdom literature in Scripture. Uh, the other two books that fit into that category are the Psalms and the story of Job. In reading for today, you read some of Solomon's Proverbs. When I think about Proverbs, I just put a short definition up here. Proverbs are, are uh, they give wisdom for life, and they are short, pithy statements of truth. One of my professors said that they're a little bit like celery. You know, sometimes you have to chew on them a while to get something out of them and understand exactly what's being made. They are witty and memorable. And they were given to instruct children in godly wisdom. You'll see that as you read through them. And they were given to instruct adults as well. But let me give you some examples. I want to read from Proverbs 3, uh, verses 1 to 10. And this again is on page 180 in the story. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. For they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, the first fruits of all your crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Now that's just a short section, but from those verses we get an example of kind of what Proverbs are like. There are different types. Some are more a one thought. Some show contrast or comparison. And they are done in such a way that we can, we can remember them. We can take them with us through the day. Uh, if you've never done this before uh, and used Proverbs in your quiet time, uh, you could read one chapter a day for 31 days and do that 
uh, and cover a whole month just in Proverbs, and it would be a great blessing to hear God's Word and take one of those Proverbs every day that really applies to your life situation. One of my favorites is that one, uh, verses 5 and 6, that so many of us know. To trust in God, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. And He will make your path straight. Good advice for life. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrestles with the question, what is the meaning of life and why are we here? And what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes is how Solomon uh, tried all kinds of things. He pursued pleasure, education, building projects, agriculture, music and the arts. I mean, you name it, and he tried it. And what was his conclusion about that? He said, you know, life lived apart from God is folly. I mean, if we try to live uh, separate from God and on our own, under the sun, in this life, it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. It doesn't make sense. But when we know God, God even gives us this great pleasure to enjoy life as a gift from Him. And so his conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes is that we should fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Honor God, put Him first in our life, and God will bless you. And then in the Song of Songs, Solomon writes a a book about the beauty of marital love. And it celebrates that. And he tells us some of these amazing things, like love is as strong as death, that burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. It's like the very flame of the Lord, of Yahweh. That there is something about love within the bonds of marriage that is beautiful. Again, it's a gift from God, but it actually, it comes from Him. It's a reflection of His love, of His passion, His desire to be with us in that kind of intimate relationship. It's not just about marriage and love. It's about our relationship with Him too and how much He loves you and me. And so you get this marvelous book that he wrote about marriage, and we get a picture of marriage as being something that is holy and good and a gift from God. He also talks about and gives a warning there, don't arouse or awaken love until it's time. A warning for those that are, um, you know, young, that are wanting to be married, to wait for the right time and to wait for God's direction on the person that he is going to bring into your life. Well, what we see in Solomon's life is that he also was a builder. Uh, He built the temple for Israel. He built alliances with neighboring nations. Uh, He built a bureaucracy and government to rule his people and kind of handle all the stuff from what was going on with the armies and agriculture and the building projects and all of that. And Solomon would build cities and stables for his horses and chariots and his army. And we get uh, told in what we read today, when Solomon completed the temple and he dedicated it to God, the Lord appeared to him once again. And you see how Solomon offered this sacrifice of thousands of animals in this uh, great celebration of worship as they were dedicating the temple. And the glory of the Lord came down and it filled that temple with a cloud so that the priests could not even enter it. 
Again, can you imagine that, being in that setting? You know, I think about when we uh, completed building this church and, and we had our first worship service here, March uh, 8th, 1992, when we celebrated and had our first worship service here. And then uh, it was a great day and we were walking around with big smiles on our face, you know, as we saw the completion of this building and thought, God, you are so awesome. This is so good. But I can't even imagine what it would have been like if, you know, the presence of the Lord came down in a cloud and, you know, in this kind of overwhelming sense of, of His Spirit being there in such a way that the priest could not even go into the building. God visibly showed that He was present among His people. And Solomon led his people in a prayer and chapter 6 it's a beautiful prayer of intercession and dedication and God once again would answer him and God answered with this familiar promise that we have it's in 2nd Chronicles 7 13 and 14 God said when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or I send a plague among my people If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's a beautiful promise. A promise that God's people have clung to in every generation. That when things are tough in our world, and I think about this in America, it's not just the recession, it's not just the impasse that there is, it seems like, in Congress right now. But it's in all areas, how morally we are moving away from God, the spiritual decline, the change in how we define marriage, or things like that. All those things that are being challenged and thrown up for grabs today. We need God. We need God to move in our land, and it is time for God's people to come together and pray. We are actually uh, planning a special prayer time at the start of January where we're going to invite you to come and join us in a time of prayer for our nation, for our church, for our ministries, the things that are going on. And we wanna, we'll keep you posted as we get a little closer to that. And then uh, going forward, I just want to mention a connection here too with the upper story once again. We've talked about how, you know, as we've been looking through this series, there's this upper story where God is at work and the lower story is where we live and we're trying to see how those two things intersect. The filling of the temple with God's presence is another example of God's desire to be with his people. God wants to live among his people. He wants to be with us. And what we saw was that in the Garden of Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Man's sin and that relationship with him changed. And then you have God starting again with Noah, and and he's going to destroy mankind and start again in this relationship with him. And God speaks to Noah, but again, sin hindered that relationship with him. So God comes up. As the time goes, goes along, he comes up with another plan. He wants to establish a nation, the nation of Israel, and then he is going to dwell among them as a people in the temple. And when he comes and he dwells among them in this temple, it is a sign again of his desire to have that kind of relationship with us. But Israel, too, will rebel against God in time, and that relationship will change. 
The filling of the temple, though, points forward to the time when Christ would come to earth and live among us. And in John chapter 1, John picked up on that same idea when he said that the word, this word Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He tabernacled among us. And he came to live among his people so that we might know what God is like. Well, when Jesus left, what did he do? He said to the disciples, stay in Jerusalem for that time when the Holy Spirit will come among you. And the presence of God took on a new dimension in our life. Where for every believer who would come into a relationship with him, God said, I would dwell in you. And that holy of holies is now you and me as believers in Christ. And God dwells among his people in the church in that spirit form. And he comes whenever we meet, where two or three are gathered. He's there in the midst of us. When we come to worship on a Sunday morning, he is here. But all of that looks forward to that day at the end of Revelation when the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven to earth and God will live among us and we will be his people and he will be our God. That's the upper story. That's God's plan that it is work all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And what God wants us to do is to connect with him in that personal way and to experience his presence in our own heart and life. And we can only do that when we come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. Well, Solomon's wisdom and wealth would continue to grow as he led the people. In 1 Kings chapter 10, uh, we see some examples of that when the Queen of Sheba came to visit. You read about that, how she couldn't believe the wealth and splendor and wisdom of Solomon's kingdom. She said, I haven't been told the half of it. You know, as she came and saw this and brought her gifts. In chapter 10, verse 14, it said the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the land. 666 talents, the footnote says, is about um, 16 tons of gold. So I took out my calculator, you know, okay, gold's trading $1,700 an ounce, uh, that's a lot. And uh, that means a pound is about $27,200. So a ton would be 54 million, you know, plus. And 16 tons, about $870 million or more, perhaps. It's hard to compare from one age to the other. In a way, what we know is that it is lots and lots of money. And the scripture describes it in this way, that he had so much gold that nothing was made of silver. That silver was considered of little value in those days. And that's amazing. But sadly, wisdom isn't the same as obedience. And Solomon's heart began to turn away from God. You know, I look at Solomon's life and I think it would have been hard for anyone who had that much money and fame and power to not be affected by it. But Solomon's heart, as he grew older, turned away from the Lord. And that's why the third point is so essential to everything else, that we need to walk in obedience. We need to walk in humility and walk in wisdom. But most of all, we need to walk in obedience to God. As Solomon grew old, his 700 wives turned his heart away to worship idols. 
We find that in chapter 11. Let me read verses 1 to 4. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. That word, nevertheless, is one of the saddest words here in Scripture. Solomon knew all of that. I mean, uh, in Deuteronomy, kings had been instructed to read the book of the law, to read about it. And what does it say there? It says kings are not to multiply wives and horses and all of these other kinds of things because if you do, God said your heart will turn aside. It will turn away from worshiping me and you will worship false gods. And that's exactly what Solomon did. He had 700 wives of royal birth. He had 300 concubines, which simply means kind of more wives. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to God, to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. It's just sad. It's hard to read that, isn't that? When you came to it this week and kind of the study or going through the chapter, you probably wondered as I did, how did this happen? Solomon, how? Why did you let it happen? And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was divided. And because his heart was divided, his kingdom would be divided too. Not in his lifetime but in the lifetime of his son. What went wrong? What happened to Solomon? I think he didn't listen to the very words that he had written. In Proverbs 4.23, the scripture says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. Many years ago, as a young Christian... I read a book, little booklet actually, by Walter Hendrickson, who was a navigator. And it's called Many Aspire, Few Attain. I've referenced it before. It's a little booklet I have kept in my drawer. Some of you have asked, how can I get one? It is out of print. Uh, you know, navigators don't print it anymore. I think it was written like 1975. But it was so good. And Walter Hendrickson talked about how the attrition rate in the Christian life is horrible. You know, we think about that. You've heard the statistics when uh, students uh, graduate from high school and leave church. If they've grown up in the church, you know, the statistics say that about 80% of them will fall away. Some of them will come back, but it's really high. And you go, now this is, this is the whole church, you know, and you always hope your church is an exception and that you're doing things well and your kids are not going to be the ones who fall away. But many do. And so here it is. They get in their 20s and they get attracted by the world and deceived by the desire for other things or wanting to be like the world or wanting to enjoy the pleasures of sin. And those temptations are out there and kids walk away from God. And that's why in our uh, student ministry and with our seniors in particular, you know, we're challenging them to take ownership of their faith and say, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to keep your relationship with God strong? 
Or when you find fellowship, you need to seek it out because your faith needs to become your own. But there are people, too, who are really strong, you know, in their, in their 20s, maybe through a campus ministry. They grew in their relationship with Christ, and then they get out of that setting, and they drift in their relationship with God. Sometimes it happens when people hit an empty nest, and they check out, and they think, you know what? I've done that. I've served as a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader. I don't want to do that anymore. And they check out, and they drift in their 50s and 60s. It can happen at any stage of life. I mean, I, I look and I try to explain the moral failure of pastors, you know, in the ages, and I see it with young men, I see it with old, older men, and I go, God, there's no guarantees here, is there? I mean, every single day we got to walk with God. We can't think that, okay, I've made it this far, I'm good, you know, I can kind of coast to the end. Not at all. Not at all. Walter Hendrickson in that book shared how he loved to uh, go camping in the jungle. And he said, one of the things that you learn when you're camping in the jungle, though, is you want to keep a fire going at night because it keeps the wild animals away. And basically, if that fire begins to go out at night, you'll start to see eyes around your campsite. And you're not sure what's behind those eyes. And so it's a good idea to throw a few more logs on the fire and get that thing going again. And he used that as an example of how in our relationship with God, we can't let our love for God grow cold. Got to keep the passion, got to keep the fire there, and how do we do that? It's by being in the Word, it's by fellowship with other believers, it's by taking steps of faith and being stretched in our relationship with God, serving, using our gifts. The only way that we're going to finish well is to walk with God every day of our life and to walk in obedience. No one wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, today's a day I'd like to wreck my life and ruin my relationships and, you know, just kind of toss it all out the door. It doesn't happen like that. Usually there are little things along the way, little compromises, little things that we gave into or did that we shouldn't have done that lead to that kind of fall and moral failure. And if the wisest man who ever lived failed, what does that say for us? What about us? If we are going to finish well, we need to walk in humility, to stay humble and teachable, and to pray. Pray that you would finish well. Do you do that? Do you pray, God, keep me strong, keep me growing in my relationship with you to the very end. I want to honor you all my days. Be honest about your struggles. Share them with someone else who can pray with you. Walk in wisdom. Listen to his word and apply it to life. Don't just be a person like James says who hears the word but doesn't do it and then thinks that you're doing okay. Listen to it and do what God has said. And walk in obedience. Wisdom is not the same as obedience. It's the person who hears God's word and puts it into practice that Jesus said would be blessed. And invite accountability, someone to meet with you, someone who can uh, pray with you, someone who will confront you if you turn aside, and who will be there for you as a friend, because we all need that. You know, I started this talk with the example of Eric Little. Eric Little finished the race. He won the 400 meters in the 1924 Olympics, and then after that, he went on to serve as a missionary in China, where he would die. He would die in a Japanese internment camp in China during World War II. 
But he gave his all for Christ. He lived his life the way he ran that race. You know, with nothing left when he got at the end. It was going to be sold out for Jesus and going strong to the end. And I think that that is a great metaphor. We may stumble along the way. I pray that we don't. But if you do fall, get up. And keep going in your relationship with him. Walk with God. And give it all for Jesus. Because it's not how you start. And it's not if you fall in the middle. It's how you finish that matters. Let's finish well. Let's pray. Father, that's my prayer for all of us. That we would be a people who would walk with you in fellowship, in obedience. Who find joy in the journey and who see your hand at work on our life. And God, you know, it's like when you've tasted the other side, I don't want to go back to that. Father, I want to walk in fellowship with you because there is more joy, more delight, more peace in five minutes of a relationship with you than anything the world has to offer. And Father, I pray that if there are things in our life right now that are hindering our fellowship with you, or tripping us up, or they become a snare, or if we have compromised in some way with the enemy, Father, we repent of that. We confess our sin, we repent, and we turn to you. And we ask for your grace, hold us close, keep us strong, keep us growing, that we might finish well. In Jesus' name, amen.